This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio, and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. The entire auto industry is having a terrible problem building cars and trucks right now, and we'll tell you why. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at MercuryInsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks everybody for listening to me for so long. How are you doing this morning, Jack? I'm doing just great. I'm congratulating you on the completion of a fence that you guys have put up. I think that's a marvelous thing. So uh, good for you. I know you've recently moved into a new house with your family. That's a great, great thing. It's great, and I actually found a nice place to charge the vehicle that I'm going to talk about this week. Ah, well, very good. Very good. You know, maybe the neighbor's uh, electricity, huh? <laughs> uh, maybe not. Okay. This week, our special guest is Kaysen Grover. He is head of product planning at Mitsubishi. Uh, we got a chance to speak with him recently about the all-new 2022 Outlander and Eclipse Cross. So we'll have that uh, lengthy interview with him coming up. He's got a lot of interesting things to say, and we, we dove into uh, what it's like to be a product planner and what you think about when you're doing that. So I, I think that's a little behind-the-scenes stuff you might be interested in. In the road test segment, Chris, tell me what you're going to take a look at this week. I drove the 2021 Chevrolet Bolt. And I know you were a little, you've been a little concerned about uh, Maine's ability and infrastructure to support an electric vehicle, uh, but you found something, you found a way to do that without too much problem, huh? Well, problem is a relative term. Uh, charging <laughs> at home without a, a level two charger is less than ideal, which we could talk about. Many people are familiar with this, but uh, infrastructure concerns still exist. Ah, okay. Well, we'll chat about that. That certainly is part of owning an electric vehicle. I'll be talking about the 2021 Toyota CHR Nightshade Edition, not just the CHR, which is an interesting cross between a bunch of different car types, actually. And uh, this is the cool nightshade edition of the vehicle. So we'll take a look at that. But before we do any of that, let's take a look at uh, what's going on in automotive news from around the globe. And uh, there's big problems, actually, big problems in the industry in terms of building enough vehicles. I guess that's a good problem to have. But there is a shortage of semiconductor chips, microchips, that basically is slowing production around the world, and it could cost industry tens of billions of dollars. This problem with microchips could cost tons of money. And I mean, what's your take on, on the whole microchip issue, Chris? Yeah, you know, people are hungry or becoming hungrier for buying uh, new vehicles, and, and so the ability to, to produce them is important in this environment, and not being able to meet that obviously costs money, as you said. So you know, reading earlier this week and late uh, last week about Subaru closing both of its global production facilities over this issue. So um, hopefully it gets better, but I've been reading reports that it could take some time to recover. Absolutely. I don't think you can just build factories or change the, the way things are produced uh, overnight. And uh, there's a global shortage of these chips and they're used in other industries beyond the auto industry too. So it's something where I think as a country, it would be good for us, good for the United States, 
to have enough production capacity, it would certainly be good for jobs as well, to have enough production capacity to build our, uh, the semiconductors that would be used in the productions of, uh, production of vehicles here. I'm not uh, convinced that we need the government to wade in to uh, set this up. I think some are, are calling for uh, not just millions, but billions of dollars to be devoted to this effort uh, from the government. Uh, it seems like the taxpayer is being called upon to fund pretty much everything these days. But uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think securing, well, let me take a step back. Without the government involved, the industry taking steps to secure its own future, I think, is important. Um, and, you know, it's hard for me to, to think that they are not sitting in a boardroom somewhere or on a Zoom call somewhere right now talking about that. Absolutely true. And uh, we'll see how that develops. This is a related story, actually, and this is a prediction from J.D. Power and LMC Automotive about what retail sales and, and car sales in general will be uh, through the month of April. We're coming to the close of that. You know, as this is uh, being published, uh, we will be, I think, on the last day of April. And sales in April are strong. I mean, <laughs> very, very strong. 1.325 million units uh, being sold is the prediction in April. That's a 110.6% increase compared to April of 2020. Of course, April of 2020 was dreadful. But it's also a 20.8% increase compared to April of 2019. That is pre-pandemic. That was a, a actually quite a good month in a, in a pretty good and a very good sales year. So uh, sales are just going through the roof. They're rolling right along despite the chip shortage and, and the inventory problems that that's creating. Yeah, you know, I guess you could argue that people are kind of waking up from being stuck in the pandemic and, and getting back to shopping. But uh, there are some exciting new models out that are really probably, uh, you know, driving in some of that demand. But um, again, you know, I'm hopeful that they get their act together because I would love to be able to see uh, people get what they want on a dealer's lot without having to resort to uh, long waits or the used car market for that matter, which is, uh, you know, prices there going to the roof as well. So um, hopeful that the solution or at least some volume is picked up in the near future. Yeah, interesting. The, the seasonally adjusted uh, selling rate, the annualized rate, the, what they call the SAAR in the industry, um, that's kind of a bellwether of how the industry is doing. It's expected to be, according to J.D. Power, 18.1 million units in April. That's a really good sign because I don't think we've ever had an 18.1 million unit sales year. Uh, so that's good news. That doesn't mean we're going to have one, but that is the sales rate through April. So that's strong. Uh, we'll see what the inventory shortage has to do with that. The other thing that I think is interesting is the average transaction price, and Chris, you and I have talked about that quite a bit. The average transaction price is up 6.8% to 37000 over $37,000. That's a lot of money, I think, for a lot of folks to be the average transaction. That's the average that people are paying for a new vehicle out there. Tell me what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, well, two things, really. People want bells and whistles, right? I mean, like you go out and buy a new car, you want all the good stuff that comes along with it. But also people are buying more SUVs, uh, large SUVs, pickup trucks, which are more expensive to begin with. So I think it's probably more complicated than that. But those two things definitely play into it. Another thing that's interesting too, and I was uh, looking at some research from our friends at TrueCar, 
And they suggested incentives, factory to uh, dealer and factory to consumer incentives, are at the lowest rate in five years, and yet we have this market that's kind of going through the roof in terms of sales. That's an interesting combination. I guess, uh, of course, when you have uh, a market that's strong, as our market appears to be right now, the manufacturers don't need to put out incentives. So it's, I guess it makes sense that... Uh, the average, that would go down, that the incentives would go down a bit. Yeah, you know, compared to what we were talking about uh, a year ago at this time with, you know, sort of huge, huge, huge incentives coming out on all sorts of vehicles, 0% financing, long, long uh, uh, loan terms and so on. Um, it's interesting to see the, the sort of flip side of that. But as you say, there's really no incentive, so to speak, for the automaker to, to discount or promote their vehicle when they're already selling more than they can make. Right, and when inventories are tight as well, so uh, 100% with you. Ford is about to set up a global battery research center, which I found interesting. Uh, they say building on two decades of battery expertise. That was somewhat unknown to me that, <laughs> that Ford had battery expertise. Certainly, they've been building electric cars for quite a while. Uh, but uh, they're stepping up uh, their game in that. They are uh, calling this new center of excellence the F Ford Ion Park. It's going to be in southeast Michigan, probably near Detroit. That's <laughs> southeast Michigan. They're going to look at new manufacturing techniques that will allow uh, Ford Motor Company to scale what they call ba uh, breakthrough battery cell designs. I guess they're looking at new materials, uh, new ways to make batteries. Of course, a better battery is the key to success in the electric vehicle industry, and Ford absolutely wants to play there. So they're going to spend $185 million on a learning lab. And uh, what do you think about uh, Ford's battery expertise and uh, what they need to do in terms of batteries and what global manufacturers need to do in terms of understanding battery design? Yeah, I think it's it's a, a smart move. Uh, you know, the more and we talked about this just a moment ago in the last segment, the more that Ford and other automakers can do to improve their own sort of in-house capability, whether that's R&D or actual production, I think it's better for everyone, especially given, you know, that things can shift globally so quickly um, with Ford. You know, they're they're saying they're rolling out, rolling forward very quickly with, you know, developing new vehicles. So this makes total sense from a from a new product standpoint as well. So uh, I think it's a great move. Yeah, I agree. Uh, a lot of times, and uh, you and I are, are old enough to remember when a powertrain, when motors, engines were uh, a big part of a differentiator between car companies, and it's much less so now. Uh, the engines are almost interchangeable in internal combustion engines. They all work great, and uh, you really don't look at one, as, uh, one co company as being way advanced than another. But if some company can uh, build a better battery and make that proprietary, I mean, that's a way to uh, sure success, I would think, at this point. Yeah, you know, everyone's kind of charging towards this solid state battery concept, which, uh, you know, we could spend a whole other show talking about what they are and why they're, they're better than the sort of traditional lithium ion. But uh, moving as quickly towards a more energy dense, more efficient battery that can charge more quickly and so on is to the benefit of everyone, especially Ford, if they're doing it in-house. Absolutely true. And when we come back, it will be road test time. Chris is going to take a look at the 2021 Chevrolet Bolt. I'll be talking about the 2021 uh, Toyota CHR Nightshade Edition. Not just the CHR, but the Nightshade Edition, which I had in my driveway for the better part of a week. 
And uh, so stay with us for that with Chris Teague, Jack Nerad with you right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. This is me, Jack, and Red back with you. And we're so glad you're with us. Thanks so much for being with us on America on the Road. If you like the show, please pass it along to a friend of yours who might be interested in two guys talking about cars. That's what we do on this show. Uh, Chris, you've got an interesting car to talk about. Uh, certainly, we've been talking about electric vehicles uh, over and over again uh, through the past episodes. But you drove one this week. Tell us about it. I did. It wasn't though. It wasn't my first uh, electric vehicle experience. It was my first electric vehicle loan uh, here in Maine, and it's important to note because my vehicles are delivered from Boston, so it's uh, it's a solid two and a half two and a half hour drive up to my house, even having moved to the new location. So uh, very nice that I was able to get the opportunity to test the 2021 Chevrolet Bolt. Um, it was the Premier trim, so Chevy offers it in two trims. I think it's the LT and then the Premier, the Premier being the more expensive. Uh, the price tag around $43,000 after a destination, so not cheap. Uh, it's 200 horsepower, 259 miles of battery-only range. Um, every bit the urban go-kart runabout type car, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, four doors, plenty of room for kids in the back, uh, a decent-sized cargo hold, and a very airy, tall cabin. And I know we're going to see, uh, I think it's called the EUV or the CUV, uh, the new Bolt coming out. It's going to be more of a crossover. Um, but I really enjoyed this, the smaller hatchback shape of this car. Um, and what do you, have you driven a Bolt, Jack? You know, I'm trying to think. I have driven a, bol- a Bolt. I don't believe I've had one for a week. Uh, I think I drove it during the launch. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, driving electrics is a lot of fun. Uh, they're uh, really interesting to drive. And if you can keep your eye off the, the, <laughs> the range <laughs> and, uh, you know, not scare yourself with that. And I think the Bolt has plenty of range, so you're probably not going to be too scared about it. It's a really enjoyable experience. One thing I would ask you about the Bolt is when I see them going down the street, and there's a lot of them in my town, they look small to me, like smaller than I'd expect in, in some ways. Does it feel small inside? Is it roomy? What's your take? It It's a really interesting sensation when you get inside. The dash is set further forward in the cabin than you would expect. So when you get in, it feels a lot bigger than it should be. And, you know, this is the time when I mentioned how tall I am. Uh, but, you know, with me... Put it out there. Come tall, on, let's hear it. Yeah. With me being six feet tall and even my neighbor who went for a ride with me, who's a little bit taller in the passenger seat, the kids still had plenty of room in the back with full-size car seats uh, you know, the the hatch area, yeah, that's you're going to suffer a little bit in cargo space there. But the folding seats, uh, if you can do without back seats, the folding seats open up, you know, quite a bit more cargo space. So for my needs, I think that if I were using it, like I said earlier, as just an urban runabout, take the kids to school, go to the grocery store, pick up a package at UPS, that sort of stuff. Perfect car for that. Uh, I don't know that I would lean on it for road trips, especially uh, like you know, we'll talk about charging in just a minute. But uh, perfect urban car. It's got a, a large infotainment screen running Apple CarPlay, Android Auto. It has a really interesting energy management interface. So it shows you uh, where your battery power is going, whether it's driving or the stereo or climate controls. Uh, so really, really neat from a kind of a car nerd perspective to be able to break down uh, what sort of stresses I'm putting on the car from an energy usage uh, standpoint. So really interesting there. Uh, I think the car looks great. It's got nice uh, futuristic lines. 
sits really ni- nicely on the on the 16 inch wheels. So uh, all around, just a very complete package. I think my biggest hang up with it to date uh, has been the price tag. You know, I look at everything in the car and I'm thinking it looks nice. It's comfortable. It's got enough room. $43,000 feels like a lot for a car of this size, uh, even with the advanced technology of the battery packs inside. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's you've identified uh, exactly the issue with electric vehicles. They are great. They're fun to drive. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things about them. They're smooth, quiet. They're everything you would like a car to be. They're just too expensive for most people these days. I think that's that's the fly in the oatmeal here. That's the thing that's preventing uh, much further adoption. That and range are issues that they've had actually since 1910 or so when we switched from electric cars to gasoline cars in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people and will argue that you get the tax credit down the road, but uh, that initial outlay of cash or that initial outlay of financing, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's going to hurt for a lot of people and they see that that price tag. So, uh, hopefully, over time, we keep saying this, over time, the, the prices will come down as more models come out and the technology becomes more wide, uh, widespread. So hopefully that's the case. But in terms of charging, Jack, you know, they delivered the car here. It had a full battery, so around 250, 260 miles of range. I drove it for five days until it was down to about 70 miles of range, took it to the only charger that is not at a car dealership within an hour of my house. Uh, let's say about 45 minutes of my house. It's at the local grocery store. It's an EVgo branded charger um, and, you know, two different types of uh, charging plugs. We could talk about that again on a, on a different show. But uh, the process, and I'm not sure if this is just EVgo or anything outside of Tesla's uh, proprietary network, but man, it's a really clunky interface. And this is nothing to do with Chevrolet. It's not their fault that it's like this, but uh, the app and the payment process and getting everything plugged in, uh, I suppose over time you get used to it and kind of have a routine, but for someone who is coming into it new, it, it seems like there's a lot of barriers just to plug your car in and be able to walk into the store and let it charge. Well, I was just going to say that that alone is an issue. Of course, a lot of people will do home charging most of the time, but you're not going to do it all the time. So what you're identifying is valuable information. Absolutely. And if I lived in an apartment building or you know any sort of public housing, you're probably, you know unless you're lucky, you're not going to have that that technology in your parking lot. But uh, after spending 40, 45 minutes in the grocery store shopping for everything from uh, baby formula to ribeye steaks, we came out and the car had charged from around 70 miles to about 150 miles. So about an 80 mile uh, range increase there. And, you know, you can break down the percentages. I haven't done the math, so I apologize about that. But, you know, 40 minutes of charging, 70 miles, 80 miles of added range, um, you know, if I were going to do that and take the car on a road trip, if I wasn't charging at home, that would be a frustrating experience. But again, there's some, some learning curves, some growing pains here that I expect, but overall the car itself, I think is great. If you, if you need a, a runabout in town, you don't take it on road trips. So you have a couple of kids and maybe a dog. It's the perfect size. Yeah. There's a lot to like about the size. There's a lot to like about the driving experience. And then there's a lot not to like about the range and, uh, the, the hassle, and um, the expense. So, <laughs> you know, all around there's pluses and minuses like in, yep, in everything else, it. right? Yeah. Well, I was driving a vehicle that in some ways is hard to classify. It is the Toyota CHR. Uh, it is, you might call it a blend of sport coupe, hatchback, and crossover. 
I think it's supposed to compete in the uh, subcompact crossover segment uh, against other vehicles like that. The Honda, the HRV, is probably its most obvious competitor. And yet, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's really a different vehicle. And in some ways, like the Eclipse Cross that our guest is going to talk about a little later in the show, um, this is a vehicle with compared to the Chevy Bolt, a much lower MSRP, $24,395, is what you pay for the Nightshade Edition. That isn't even the cheapest edition. That is, uh, you know, kind of a, a bit zooty. I think they're doing a nice job with the Nightshade Edition in, in that they make it look good, but they don't throw every option at it, so it's not super expensive. I think $25,000 for something that's a looker. At least it will get looks, I guarantee that. Whether it's a looker you like the looks of or not uh, might be debatable, but it certainly gets looks, uh, is a nice calling card right of itself. It is about the size of other subcompact crossovers. It's It's a tall vehicle, but not super tall. You have that kind of sport coupe look to the roof line. And it's 172.6 inches long, which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of people, but uh, that's significantly shorter than, uh, say, a Honda CRV or RAV4, something like that. Uh, the vehicle I had was supersonic red, and it had black accents. When you get the Nightshade Edition, you get a black fabric interior, which I think is kind of interesting. You know, not super expensive, but still really attractive. Uh, You get black 18-inch alloy wheels. Everything is black here. Black is the new black, apparently. Uh, You get black lug nuts, black door handles, a black chin spoiler, black badges. So nightshade means black here, uh, black accents. That's really popular right now. Another thing that's unseen is it comes with Toyota Safety Sense 2.5. So that has a lot of cool stuff. Uh, They have pre-collision system with pedestrian detection. It also detects cyclists and uh, maybe even dogs. They're not saying that, but I hope they do because we want to protect our our nation's dogs. Roadside assist, uh, road sign assist, and uh, full range dynamic radar cruise control. So that's cool. Adaptive cruise control in a car that costs $25,000. Very, very nice. Uh, Lane-keeping technology. Blind spot alert. It's an interesting vehicle, I would say, in in many, many ways. Uh, It also has standard Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, uh, standard Sirius XM. So for connectivity and all that, which this is a vehicle, I think, aimed at young urbanites, they're going to like that quite a bit. And it will turn heads, certainly. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. It adds the sport coupe to what is could be a fairly mundane-looking segment. What is your take, uh, before I, I blather on anymore about this, uh, Chris, about the whole styling of the CHR and, and this vehicle uh, overall? <laughs> you know, I don't actually have a problem with the styling. When it first came out, that's you know kind of the shape that I really enjoy. What it does for me, though, on the negative side is that sloping roof cuts off headroom in the back and makes it really hard to load and unload car seats. Um, So for me, yeah, it looks great, but it's not as functional as I'd like for it to be. On the flip side of that, I think Toyota has done a really good job with packaging. As you mentioned, the Toyota Safety Sense uh, 2.5 standard Apple CarPlay and so on at a price point that frankly, you know, in today's world is considered budget. So I think they've done a great job with that. Absolutely. I mean, this is a car that is roomier than a subcompact sedan or a subcompact hatchback. A little taller, you have that 
a higher driving position that people seem to like. They've done a really good job with interior storage space. There are cubbies everywhere through this thing. It has an 8-inch uh, audio display or infotainment display and then a 4.2-inch uh, information display between the instruments. So in a lot of ways, these are luxury features in a car that costs less than $25,000, and you can probably work a deal where it's even less than that. So I think there's a lot to like about this car. This isn't as refined a car as many we drive and talk about on the show, that is for certain. The two-liter four-cylinder produces only 40, 144 horsepower, but it's peppy enough and it does have the continuously variable transmission that has shift mode, which always baffles me. That's, again, uh, room for another show. It's, you know, the engine's a little buzzy. It's not maybe quite as refined as some other vehicles uh, we've tested that maybe cost two or three times as much. But for something that costs $25,000, I think the Toyota CHR Nightshade Edition is a find is really something to take a look at if you want a car that uh, will stand out from the crowd. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and you know, we don't talk a lot about warranties and maintenance, but Toyota does throw in the first two years of maintenance with that vehicle for free or 25,000 miles, which could be a big boon to some buyers. So uh, all around a great package, like you said. So two very interesting vehicles, uh, one uh, considerably more expensive than the other, uh, one an all-electric, uh, one a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. Uh, both aimed, I think, at uh, similar markets in a lot of ways in, in the Toyota CHR and the Chevy Bolt. Well, when we come back, uh, we will be talking with our special guest, Kaysen Grover. He is the head of product planning at Mitsubishi. We'll be talking about the all-new Mitsubishi flagship vehicle, the 2022 Outlander, and also the 2022 Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross. So stay with us for that interview with uh, Kaysen Grover coming right up. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad, and we're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nerad with you, and we have a special guest for you today. Really interesting stuff. Uh, we are able to drive two of the vehicles that this gentleman is responsible for. His name is Kaysen Grover. He is the Director of Product Planning for Mitsubishi Motors in the United States. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to this event, too, where we are driving uh, two of your newest products. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what I was driving today? Sure. Uh, very happy to do so and happy to have you here as well. Uh, we are driving the 2022 Eclipse Cross and the 2022 Outlander, our two newest products. Let's dive into Outlander first. Uh, Outlander, of course, is a big seller for you, a very important vehicle. Uh, it's been a vehicle that I've liked for a long time. I think it's one of those hidden gems out there. <laughs> maybe maybe hidden you don't like the term so much, but uh, the gem part you probably sh uh, certainly uh, like. Tell us a bit about a little bit of the history of Outlander and then about the new one. Uh, yes, this is the fourth generation of Outlander to come to the U.S., and it is our flagship product. It sits at the top of our lineup. Um, builds upon a lot of the history the vehicle has, a lot of the success we've had with it. Uh, one of the critical features there is it's the only vehicle in its segment, which is compact crossover, that has a third row, for example. So we've kept that. We want to keep that heritage. But we also want to make a big, bold statement about our flagship and really stand out in the marketplace. Well, that's an incredibly popular segment, stands uh, the new Outlander in good stead. The fact that you have... A unique selling proposition, that third row that 
no, no other one that I'm aware of does, certainly as a, a standard equipment. Um, tell us how that, that helps you, makes you feel about that whole thing. Um, well, it's, it's good to stand out when you have such a big segment. Uh, most of the vehicles in this segment are the top sellers for their various OEMs, and that's often true with us. We oscillate back and forth a little bit between Outlander and Outlander Sport. We anticipate with this new model launch that it will jump to the top for us. So it's great to have something uh, feature-wise that stands out like that. But again, really, the design of this vehicle and the level of luxury on the interior also will really, really help it stand out. Yeah, I think absolutely it does, and I, I was able to experience that. Just to put it in context, it's a vehicle that competes with, say, the Honda CRV, the Toyota RAV4, you know, uh, among the 800-pound gorillas, I think, in that segment. Uh, That's exactly right, yeah, yes. Yeah, and uh, this, uh, this vehicle, uh, I think, as you mentioned in, in your early discussion about it, has some relationship to another important vehicle. Uh, in the segment, and uh, that's the uh, the Nissan Rogue, right? Yes, that's correct. So we share a co-developed platform. Of course, Nissan is one of our alliance partners, along with Renault, and there's some co-ownership of the companies there. I think it's really critical to note that it's a shared platform, and it was co-developed with the two companies, uh, but then really each team went their separate ways and developed you know everything about the design the engineering of the vehicle the tuning of the vehicle the equipping of the vehicle separately so it's really critical to note that this is designed engineered and also built by mitsubishi in japan right and i can attest to the fact that this is a very different vehicle than the rogue i've spent a lot of time in the rogue and i like the rogue a lot but uh and i like the outlander a lot but they definitely have different characters how would you characterize the differences i would say you know, again, really, this is our flagship. So we're not shy about putting a lot of content and a lot of luxury in this vehicle. Uh, we're not worried about eating into something that sits above it, <laughs> at least not at this time. Um, so yeah, you have no pathfinder to worry about. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, eating sales from and, and so you know, with that in mind, we were able to really just build in really the maximum presence. Uh, our vehicle is bigger than the outgoing model, as well as generally bigger in every dimension versus the Rogue, at least to some extent. But more to the point, the design really calls attention to those changes in the dimension or those increases in the dimensions. It's really a substantial vehicle when you, you know, just from walking up to it, that curbside look at the vehicle, the new Outlander just seems to be a large vehicle. And it's not super large, obviously, but it is large. So talk a bit about how, how it is larger than the the previous one, for example? Uh, it, it is, like I say, it's bigger in every dimension, but not really, truly dramatically so. It's really the design that makes it appear dramatically bigger. And that's important. You know, people, so are, by not dramatically bigger, are we talking about just fractions of inches or an inch or, you know, what, what is something? Generally speaking, about an inch or two in most dimensions. Okay. So, so Which it's, in it's the car business is kind of substantial, right? I, I, I write about a lot of these vehicles and the difference between a larger and smaller a lot of times is two or three inches in overall length. That is a good point, yes. So it's, it, it's significant in engineering terms. But I think the point I want to make is if you're shopping in this segment, you know, you haven't moved up to something that's equivalent to maybe a big body on frame truck that's going to be hard to park, for example. Right, right. So you have all the advantages of a compact, but you have a, a substantial vehicle. So give us chapter and verse on, on the new vehicle. What's, what's changed? Obviously, everything has changed. But uh, 
give us you a know, hold of that. It's really part of the beauty of talking about this vehicle again is yes, everything is new. Um, so it's really more about what we, what we did with what we have, what the design means to us. Um, again, I mentioned, you know, emphasizing bold size, emphasizing the large dimensions, but also doing some things that are unique. I think one of the most exciting things on this vehicle is the flat roof design that you see from the profile. Um, a lot of crossover vehicles go a little bit softer and a little bit more car-like and rounded. We really went much more SUV than we did crossover. And that's very much intentional and it really harkens back to our past as well. Yeah, and to put that into context for our listeners, a lot of, a lot of roofs slope backwards. Uh, they are narrow at the, at the tail end as opposed to being more squared off. And you've actually done, done the opposite of that. In some ways, more truck-like or more um, conventional SUV-like, which I think probably gives you substantially better rear, uh, rear seat headroom and more cargo space. Right. And of course, rear seat headroom is important since we have the third row. We've got headroom we need all the way back. So it, it's very convenient that you know, we have a design clearly inspired by our SUV past, but also that has a really good functional benefit. Uh, other benefits to the uh, square, essentially squared off roof line? Um, Mostly visual, really. Um, but again, it just makes such a such a great statement out there. It's really unlike anything anywhere near it as far as segments. Right. Probably makes the access through the rear hatch easier and uh, you're able to get more stuff in there. Uh, a little bit, yes. I think our, our hinge point's a little bit higher because it's flat, so that can always help. Just a bigger opening, easier to fit something large in there. Right, yeah, the massive TV or whatever. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. The lumber from uh, Home Depot or the thing from Ikea that you have to put together. <laughs> of course, with the interesting instructions. Struggle with, yes. Interior-wise, pretty significantly upscale. Uh, certainly the, the vehicle I drove today was. T- talk a bit about that. You've talked about the fact that this is the flagship of your line. Yeah, again, uh, certainly no accident. It plays into that flagship role. So big, bold exterior, similar ideas on the interior. So from a luxury standpoint, the idea is really to have unexpected materials, unexpected features. Uh, From a material standpoint, the best example is the available semi-allen leather, something that has been optional in luxury segments in the not-so-distant past. So what makes it semi-aniline? You know, what is aniline and then (laughs) what is... Semi version of that. It's really just part of the the finish on the leather. It's it's less of a coating and a little bit more natural. So that's why it has kind of a softer feel. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. It's a premium leather, and then you have leathers that are not not quite so premium, but still uh, you know a, a good interior for a kind of midline. I think right. We do absolutely yes. Yeah, so SEL is our top trim level, that's where leather comes in. And then SEL Touring is the very top, and that's a package built upon that. That's where the premium leather comes in. Talk a bit about interior uh, design overall, interior colors and and those kinds of things. Yeah, overall interior design is inspired by uh, what the Japanese call omotenashi. So it's uh, basically the idea of welcoming your guests and thinking about their needs. Uh, Hospitality is really one way to put it. What does that mean? It means we've thought about the way people use the vehicle. We've thought about surprising them with a level of luxury that they don't expect. So I mentioned the premium leather. Of course, we also have memory seating, heated seats front and rear, three-zone climate, uh, a lot of things that uh, not all the vehicles in this segment. Well, and I like the fact that the second row seating, uh, maybe across the board, I I can't remember, but you will remember, uh, is 40-20-40 as opposed to your typical 60-40 
split rear seat. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's correct. And that is standard and that is unusual in this segment. So that just gives you a lot of flexibility. You can put that middle portion down and, you know, you mentioned the Ikea items. It could be the Home Depot items or whatever. It could even be skis or, you know, pole vaulting pole or something. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It could go in that, you know, essentially center section. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. And you talked a bit about the fact that this is a three row. And also, I think we're very honest about how big the three row is. Talk a bit about that. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we we call it an occasional use three row. Um, Perfectly good for smaller children and, and short trips and so on. So I'm a family guy with young kids and I can absolutely relate to that and I use that in a current gen uh, Outlander as my daily driver. Let's talk about infotainment system. That is so, so important. My experience with the infotainment system was really positive today during the drive. It um, anticipates, I mean, it's more than intuitive. Uh, It anticipates some of the things I needed to do, like cycle back to Apple CarPlay and there's a a quick little button that uh, enables you to do that on the infotainment system. Tell our listeners a bit about the whole thing. No, that's a great point. It's a, it's a big update for us. It's an all-new system. Uh, you mentioned CarPlay. Of course, we have CarPlay and Android Auto, also wireless CarPlay and wireless charging. Um, and, and we have a lot more customization available inside the main menus in that system. So you hit the menu button, it'll take you to sort of a home, but you can swipe uh, left or right, and you can actually choose what's on those screens. So you can put you know, your audio information in a small version of the map if that's what you wanna see. Um, and to your point, very happy with the execution. If you are using CarPlay or Android Auto to navigate actively, like with a destination set, and you press the map, hard button, you actually get that. Whereas that's fairly uncommon. Usually it will take you to the embedded map. Maybe you're not using that. That's right. not where I wanted to go. So Yeah, absolutely. The car I drove in here this morning uh, offered me that little conundrum. <laughs> uh, and I was able to get through it somehow. But it, w- it was not nearly as uh, convenient as in the Mitsubishi Outlander that I've been driving. Tell us a bit about powertrain. It seems like we talk about powertrain less and less uh, in this industry because uh, powertrain in some ways is kind of a level playing field, but tell us a bit about the powertrain in the, in the Outlander. Yeah, this, uh, this vehicle, the Outlander, is equipped with a 2.5 liter naturally aspirated four-cylinder, does have direct injection, does have variable valve timing. Um, some of those are new innovations for us. Uh, it is a co-developed engine by the Alliance. Uh, and the output on that is 181 horsepower, 181 pound-feet of torque, so nice and square in that sense. Yeah, and tell us a bit about shifter and, and transmission and all that. Yeah, uh, the vehicle's equipped with a continuously variable trans- transmission, or CVT. Uh, it does have eight steps, and in my humble opinion, it's one of the best executions of those steps, which of course means it simulates an automatic transmission. Does it always use the steps? Uh, essentially give you that sense that you're going through gears when <laughs> when indeed you're not? Or Generally, yes. I think wide open throttle, of course, it'll drop to the lowest reasonable ratio mm-hmm. and more or less you know, keep the revs at the optimum position. But normal driving or when you let back off, it's going to step down. Uh, you can also use paddle shifters and sort of force those ratios if you want. Would a CVT be more uh, efficient Without that step feel, uh, is, you know, that's kind of imposed <laughs> uh, on us. And I, I think it's one of the tyrannies of listening to auto journalists because they always complain about CVTs and they don't feel like a step transmission or a geared transmission. Well, they're not supposed to. They don't, ha- you know, they don't <laughs> operate the same way, so why should they? But what's your take on all that as a product planner? 
Uh, we haven't done side-by-side -side testing with and without the steps. I, I can see how in theory it might be slightly better, but really, you know, everything we do is the, the steps are integrated into part of the story as we look for our target MPG. Yeah, and it's interesting too, and I'll, I'll get off this little soapbox in a second, but with electric vehicles, everybody loves the fact that they're so smooth and they don't go through gear steps, right? Uh, that's just smooth application of power from beginning to end. And yet we apparently want geared type steps in our CVTs, and I, I fail to understand that. <laughs> and you can either answer that or find a question there to answer or not. I don't have the perfect <laughs> answer for that. I think there are different expectations, particularly perhaps among repeat electric vehicle buyers, even if it's a plug-in hybrid or maybe even a hybrid. They've maybe gotten used to that kind of instant torque, as we call it. Uh, on a naturally aspirated engine such as this, you're gonna, you are going to let it rev up a little bit more. So it could just be that. Um, of course, yes, to your point, many EVs have only one ratio, right, and just operate through the range. So on some level, it's just kind of the way it is. But, uh, yeah, maybe when you get an EV, you just expect a different experience. So you, you handle that a little differently. Yeah, I think so. Well, the Outlander is... Is this a, I should know this, but I'm going to ask the question because I don't exactly know. Is it a 2021 or 2022? 2022. There's no 2021 uh, Outlander. Got it. And it will be in showrooms when? Uh, really within two to three weeks at this point. So it's in the U.S. ports kind of going through uh, its final checks and just about ready to ship out. Ah, very cool. Very cool. And give us just a, a range of pricing. Uh, the entry price is 25795 does not include 1195 uh, destination charge. And the fully loaded, even with some accessories on it, is going to come under 40,000. The one uh, you or the one you drove today is just under 38,000. And as I mentioned, you know, very, very well equipped, really a higher level versus most of the segment. Yeah, absolutely true. I can attest to that myself as an independent judge of vehicles. Let's talk a bit about the other vehicle you're showing us today. I have yet to drive this one because we're doing it between those drives. We're doing this interview between those drives, but it is the Eclipse Cross. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Eclipse Cross uh, has a very, very big update. Uh, it, is, it is what we call a mid-cycle update, but this one's really you know, a, a, a big redesign, much more than most OEMs do uh, in the middle of a life cycle. And what I mean by that is it does have new sheet metal elements, both front and rear. And, you know, quite a bit has changed as far as the lighting has been moved around, for example, within the front end. Uh, the end result is a sleeker vehicle and a vehicle that's actually five and a half inches longer. So, you know, we talked about some of those one or two inch differences. That's a pretty <laughs> amazing <laughs> mid-cycle change to go five and a half inches longer. Right. It's, it's yeah. a big, big change. About four inches of that is in the rear and about an inch to an inch and a half is in the front. Okay. And what, what in the rear got longer? Yeah. It's really the design of the hatch. So okay. from a, a design standpoint, the biggest change is we've moved from kind of a split window design that had a bar that went through the middle of two separate pieces of glass to a bit of a more traditional single piece of glass. Everything is it's elongated back a little bit and then has a little more of a slope to it, all of which is designed just to, to really enhance that sleekness that fits. Because really, this is our sporty crossover vehicle. Yeah. And certainly the front end is sleeker than the out Outlander as well. It's, it strikes me as a kind of a more tapered approach as opposed to the Outlander being a kind of a, a blunt bluff end, you know, going into the into the air. Yes, exactly. End. And and that's all very, very much intentional. You know, I mentioned SUV styling as opposed to crossover on Outlander. 
Uh, Eclipse Cross is really the opposite. We, we want to remind you of sporty vehicles and we want it frankly to be a sporty vehicle. So uh, you'll see kind of signature design elements on the vehicle, similar front end styling, but not a copy of the bigger or smaller vehicle, something that's really tuned to that purpose. What are some cross shops for Eclipse Cross? Uh, we get cross-ups with vehicles like Hyundai Tucson and Ford Escape, other other vehicles of that size. So it's really about one notch down from the Outlander in terms of size. Right. And those vehicles are, are extremely... <laughs> Extremely conventional, if if that's not uh, you know too much of a too much of a description of the same thing, right? You're, you're traditional or you're extremely traditional. Uh, whereas the Eclipse Cross has a personality, I think, all its own. Talk a bit about that, would you? It does. You know, I mentioned it's our sporty crossover. You know, we really we have standard turbocharged power in the vehicle, uh, very kind of torque biased. Horsepower is a little over 150, but the torque is over 180 at 3,500 RPM, so readily available. It's kind of just uh, fun and eager and wants to go all the time, and, th and that fits with the design that I mentioned. So the idea there is to have a, a dynamic story that stands out and then a design story that really backs that up and really invites you to, to play along. Is this a co-developed platform or is this a, a Mitsubishi only platform? This is not a co-developed platform. So this, uh, you know, it's in its fourth model year overall. We did skip 21, much like on Outlander. So give us the high points on Eclipse Cross um, because we don't have a, a ton of time left in the interview. Let us know what the consumer really should know about this vehicle. Sure. Um, Again, it's really, it's the sleek, sporty, and dynamic crossover. So we really want to emphasize that. Uh, it certainly delivers in terms of dynamics with standard turbocharged power. It's got quick and precise steering, much more so than the typical crossover. So uh, we really think it, it delivers a level of excitement that you don't necessarily expect in a crossover vehicle. And tell us about interior and, and those things. Yeah, interior, uh, we've always had a, a more sporty kind of cockpit-like interior in this vehicle. Um, there have been a lot of updates for the 2022, and they're all very much targeted at making some improvements in terms of ease of use of the controls, and then also bringing in some more elegance. So on the control front, uh, one of the biggest changes is you know, the center screen now has uh, embedded navigation. It's also eight inches versus seven in the middle and upper trim. Uh, but more to the point, that screen has actually been moved you know, rearward so that it's closer to the passenger, well, driver critically and front seat passenger as well. Uh, that makes reach much, much easier. So, you know, back on those dimensions, a two-inch move on a control from yeah, an ergonomic standpoint yeah. is huge. And an inch larger screen also is a significantly larger screen. Yeah, you know, closer, of, easy to use, more. bigger targets with a bigger screen. Right. And we, it's a touch screen, right? And it is, absolutely. So, so having those targets and... Yeah, that's why we wanted to close. Jab with your finger, yeah. But we also brought back volume and two knobs. Outlander has those as well. So uh, just happy to see that. It's I can't tell you how I applaud that. Uh, back in the day when I was at Motor Trend Magazine, which is a long time ago now, 30 years ago, I wrote about the disappearance of knobs and how two knobs on a radio were just about perfect. And um, they were disappearing. And they disappeared then, and they came back, and then they disappeared again, and they disappeared again. And um, they disappeared again, I guess, just a few years ago, and now they're back again. And they just work really well, don't they? They do. Uh, <laughs> technology has changed over time. Most recently, uh, many systems have had kind of a capacitive touch, either in some cases a slider, in some cases kind of volume up, down. Um, 
there was a lot of experimentation there. Uh, almost every vehicle now has steering wheel controls. So I think from a pure engineering standpoint, the thought is, well, you've already got that control. We could get, even get rid of the center control. But there are two things I think play into the knobs coming back. Uh, one is, at least I'm guilty of this, if I hear a siren or I hear something and I need to hear, I still have kind of a gut reaction that my right arm Reach reaches out yeah. and I twist twist the knob down. Uh, and then the other one is, of course, the, the front seat passenger needs a control as well. Right. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and my wife likes to control the radio and likes to control the sound system, so that's a good thing. Puts on her country music. I'm not sure why she likes country music, but there you go. <laughs> The uh, Eclipse Cross is now in showrooms, correct? Uh, just about a couple of weeks. So some of the earliest ones arrived, and now really a lot of the volume's coming in through April. Here is the question I was going to ask you. As a product planner, not just a product planner, but a director of product planning, you're a big shot uh, <laughs> in product planning. Do you use steering wheel controls a lot? I personally do. Um, I am a big, <laughs> I've been a big proponent of cruise control for a long time and adaptive cruise control even more so. Just, I love it. I mean, it keeps you me out both. of trouble yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> keeps that set speed better for fuel efficiency in a sense and so on. So of course that's basically always on the steering wheel. I know there's some stock implementations out there. Um, and I, I have become used to using uh, particularly source and volume uh, on the steering wheel more recently. But like I say, it's, it's really almost that emergency type situation when I still want to reach and just turn that knob. Yeah, down. I guess I'm so old that I'm always reaching for the radio knobs and probably always will as long as they're there. Well, thanks so much for being with us. We really do appreciate it. Kaysan Grover, uh, thanks so much for being with us and uh, for hosting this thing today. Uh, a lot of great information about these products coming from Mitsubishi, so we appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. And that was our interview with Kaysen Grover. He is head of product planning at Mitsubishi. Um, interesting stuff, I think, telling us about uh, the development of the new Mitsubishi Outlander and how the fact that it is their flagship vehicle has uh, sent them in a particular direction on that vehicle. So thanks so much to him for being with us. And Thanks always to Chris Teague, our inimitable co-host, for being with us. We appreciate it, Chris. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks, everyone, for tagging along with us today. If you like what you heard, please go ahead and hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It'll help us uh, continue to grow and get in front of more people, bringing them along for the ride. We'd love to have them along for the ride. We're so glad you were with us for this ride today, and please join us again next week for another edition of America on the Road. Uh, I have a book out there called The GR Factor, Unleashing the Undeniable Power of the Golden Rule that you might want to check out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at your local bookstore. And uh, our thanks to Mercury Insurance for helping sponsor the show. So please join us again next time for another edition of America on the Road. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com.